I'd like to welcome our Cedar Lake campus and HP campus as we join together uh, to open God's Word. Welcome to Paris and the famous art museum, the Louvre. I know that you've come a long ways to get here, it's lots of trouble, so glad that you've come. I know where you're going, the same place everybody's going here. It's up, the, it's up the stairs, you take a right, you take a left, you'll see a big group of people, and there it is, the Mona Lisa. Hey, it's been hard getting here, hasn't it? I mean, it's a long journey. There's a lot of steps that you got to climb, but I'm here to tell you, just a little bit higher here, when you peek over the, the edge here, you're going to see it, Machu Picchu. Hey, it's long. And you've had a long trip to get here, I acknowledge it, but this is so worth it. It's long, thousands of miles long, built to keep the invaders out. But I'm here to tell you, you're about to see the Great Wall of China. It's a little bit how I feel today, uh, because as we come to Romans 8, I feel a little bit like a tour guide, just wanting to point out all these amazing things that we find in this wonderful chapter in Romans, arguably... Not only the greatest chapter in Romans, but the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. And I strangely remember the pastor of my childhood uh, preaching from Romans 8. I was just a boy, but he told, he told this. He said, you know, a survey was done of Christian leaders, and they asked them, if you were on a deserted island and you could only have one chapter of the Bible, which chapter would you choose? Guess which chapter won the survey? Indeed, Romans 8. And as we come to this wonderful, wonderful chapter, we do so reverently and joyfully. We do so in the context of Romans and what we have seen in Romans so far. uh, Because Romans 1 through 7 broadly describes how sinners can have right standing with God. That's the point. Uh, You get to uh, chapter 8. And chapter 8 is the Fort Knox of our security forever in this salvation. So Romans 1 through 7 is right standing with God. Romans 8 says once you have right standing with God, you'll never not have right standing again forever. In some ways, Romans 8 is like what I oftentimes almost daily communicate with my daughters, where I, I tell them, I love you, Daddy loves you. Oh, Daddy loves you. Daddy lo- uh, to the moon and back. Like, to the sun and back. Daddy loves you. Daddy will always love you. Daddy will love you always and forever. Romans 8 is essentially, of all the things in the Bible, God's statement to us. Your heavenly Father loves you. Your heavenly Father will always love you. Your heavenly Father will love you to heaven and back. Your heavenly Father will love you eternally. And for this reason, Christians down through the centuries have read Romans 8 and just have loved it, delighted in it, and we get to do that here. For these months ahead, this is going to take us into June, Romans 8. That is not to say that there are not difficulties in in chapter 8, and I think many of us are going to have some paradigm shifting that we're going to have to do because of what Romans 8 is going to teach us to understand that following Jesus is living life and in and by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 is about Jesus, but it is hugely about the Holy Spirit. And he is also going to assure us of our salvation, not because we're wonderful people or because you know, you know, we're smart or anything like that. Our salvation, he is going to ground in God's 
sovereign, saving grace and eternal purposes in uh, calling us and in deed in electing us with predestination. But all of this is intended by God to be for us his shout, I love you, I will always love you, I have saved you, I will save you forever, I will love you always and forever. So what a wonderful few months we have ahead here. As we get into Romans 8, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of Romans 8. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. And I'm not even going to look right now to see who does have a Bible and who doesn't have a Bible so that you can know that as I, as I say this, I'm not, con- I'm, this is no, you know, I'm not pointing to you, but bring your Bibles, please. Can you bring your Bibles? And some of you are like, I got it on an app on my phone. Could I suggest to you that it might be better? Of all the opportunities you have to study the Bible in church, the next three months might be the greatest of all time. Why not bring your Bible? If there's a chapter to highlight and mark up and get all, you know, editorial on, it's this one. So please, please bring your Bible. And if you can't, it doesn't work, and you want to look, look at it digitally, okay. But please follow along. But if you notice in Romans 8, it begins, and this will be our text for today, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Romans begins with no condemnation. If you go to the end of Romans 8, it says, there is nothing in all creation that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So Romans 8 ends with no separation. So it begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and as somebody said, the whole middle part is about no defeat. This is a chapter of victory, and victory by God's grace and by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now we haven't been in Romans since December. We had family month, we had the message, loving God's uh, image everywhere. And so I would like to just put Romans 8 in context, which requires me to do a flyby of what we have seen in Romans so far. So if you've been coming, like you could come up here and do this as well. In fact, why don't you do that? Could you come up right? I'm kidding. Uh, Let me just do a flyby of Romans, what we've learned so far. So Romans starts off right away after explaining that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe in Romans 1.16. But it really begins with the basis that all mankind is under the wrath of God. Why are we under the wrath of God? Because of our unrighteousness, which Paul explains as being primarily our refusal to worship our creator and the usurping of our creator in our worship with self and created things. We worship created things rather than our creator. And that the turmoil and the brokenness and the devastation of that in humanity and in society and indeed in the universe, Romans 8 is going to teach us, is such that it affects every aspect of our being, right down even to our sexuality and our understanding of our identity as men and women and, and all of that. Every, every like, uh, molecule of our lives affected by sin, we are under the wrath of God, and justly so, because we have sinned against him. You get to chapter 2, and Paul says, now maybe you're a Jew reading this, and you think, well, that can't apply to us, because we have the law of God. And Paul says, it is a privilege to have the law of God, the Old Testament law, but it does for the Jews what it does for the Gentiles, namely, it shows us how far short we fall of the glory of God. And so you in chapter 2, and the Jews are under the condemnation of God. You in chapter 1, the Gentiles are under the condemnation of God. That's pretty much, that's everybody. And 
We move into chapter 3, and Paul introduces this wonderful, glorious, what Luther called the alien righteousness. We come to discover that if mankind was going to be saved, it had to be God who did it, because we cannot save ourselves. The religions of the world are man's attempt at self-salvation. I'm going to merit it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to earn my way to God. I'm going to be better than average. Something like that. Religion always is about what man does, but Christianity is about what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ. That God sent his son into this world to die in our place for our guilt and by doing so to establish a righteousness that or a right standing that is available to all who will believe in him. This is known as justification where God declares us righteous. The imputing righteousness of Jesus, the the placing of his righteousness to our moral account and God says, I'm going to see you as righteous as Jesus forever. This is by his grace. This is for his glory and for our eternal good. None of us can take any credit for it. It is all God's doing. Even the greatest man in the whole of human history, Abraham, was saved not because he was a great man or he was a righteous man. He was saved by faith as well. And Paul's point there is, you know, hey, I don't know you, but you're no Abraham. And even Abraham had to be justified by faith in God. And if Abraham had to, how about uh, the rest of the schmoes like you and me? All the more, we need this salvation. And if we have this salvation, we have peace with God, Romans 5. Romans 6 moves on from right standing with God to find out that God's promise through Jesus is that we would respond to that grace with a transformation of life, that that God's grace is not permission to sin, it is permission and power not to sin. And to realize that if I am in union with Christ, that now there is uh, the the possibility and indeed the purpose of God to conform me to the likeness of Christ. And we talked about the, you know, how how are you going to sculpt a horse? I'm going to chip off everything that doesn't look like a horse. And God is in all of our lives chipping away, chipping away. You had a week of God chipping away in your life. Me too. Why? Because he wants to make us and conform us into the image of the most wonderful person who has ever lived, Jesus Christ. It's the greatest privilege of our lives. And yet, in spite of all of these glorious purposes, the reality of indwelling sin, Romans 7, is such that none of us are going to arrive in this life. None of us are ever going to get to a place where sin isn't influencing us and the battle isn't there. Even the Apostle Paul says, the good that I would I do not, the evil which I would not, that I do. O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he ends it with, praise be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the context of Romans 8 is coming on the heels of, of Romans 7. And Romans 7 is a chapter of like honestly discouragement and just the frustrating reality of the old man, the old me, my ancient foe, sin, this active force in my life that is seeking to frustrate the purposes of God and therefore I have all of these struggles all of the time and this tension with indwelling sin. So Romans 8 comes on the heels of frustration and disappointment, a chapter of lament. And I want you to imagine with me, let's just say Romans ended in chapter 7. Like the last thing that's said is, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? 
You'd put it down and you'd say to yourself, well, what a disappointing book that is. I heard it was really great, but I'm kind of ending sort of sad here. Like, is that, is that really it? Because what that means is, is that God doesn't apparently have the power to actually change my life. God doesn't have the power to actually help me overcome sin in my life. That apparently, yes, I'm going to heaven, but man, life on earth is going to be spiritual stink all the time. I'm going to hate it. Can't wait to die. Because then I get over it. There's no victory in this life. And maybe you're there today. Maybe if you were honest, you would say, you know, my life's a lot more Romans 7 than Romans 8. In fact, I've had a week of Romans 7, of seeing my own sinfulness and my own wretchedness. And I just, I fell into the habitual sin again. And I, patterns in my marriage and in my parenting and in my vocation. I, I've done it again. Here I am, God. I've done it again. You have no hope of ever changing. You think that the way that it is in your life, it's always going to be that way. You're always going to be the person that you are. And even Christianity and the power of God can't actually get you out of the rut that you are in with sin in your life. So what say ye, Pastor Steve? What say ye, Romans? What say ye, Apostle Paul? What say we? We say Romans 8. That's what we say. And to give you a flavor for it, I'm going to ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word as we get into Romans 8. I'm not going to read all of it. And our text today is just verses 1 and 2. But just to give you a sense of it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And God's people said, and I'm here to tell you, it just gets better from there. Like, I want you to pay attention, but if you did keep reading, you would realize it is just glorious truth. That lies ahead. So thank you. You may be seated. Our focus today is verses 1 and 2. So let me read these again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. May God bless our exposition as we get into it here. And you'll notice, and I've said this over the years many, many times, that when you're, when you're seeking to understand what the Bible is, is teaching, there are little clues that are placed in there that help you interpret the meaning. 
And the word therefore is one of the best ones in the Bible. And we see it here in verse 1. There is therefore now. Okay, so therefore means on the basis of what I've been saying, here now is the conclusion. It's a logical transition. From what? Well, he might be transitioning from chapter 7, verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. That would make verses 7 and following a kind of parentheses. But then in 7 and following, we have all that wonderful, honest kind of uh, testimony from Paul about his own struggle with sin. And maybe pastorally, he's transitioning now. Maybe it's both. There is therefore now no condemnation. What does no, let's talk about what condemnation means, okay? Let's start with condemnation. And this is one of these places where the, we have the, the English uh, translation out of the original Greek. This was written in the Greek of the day, Koine Greek. And so our translations are very good, very accurate, but sometimes it's a struggle to translate. And the word condemnation in English means a little bit something different than the word it, does, than it, it did in the Greek. In English, condemnation means somebody like slamming you. You're a bad person. You know, you're on the bus going to school and you got the bully on the bus and he's just berating you. What a horrible person, you know, you are, this, that, and the other. Or maybe you've got a coworker uh, that is just, you know, they'll condemn you, you're a lousy worker, you're a this, you're a that, blah, blah, blah. In English, condemnation typically entails a pronouncement of badness or a pronouncement of, of guilt, okay? It is, it, is, it is that typically, singularly. Condemnation here is that it, in the Greek. It is the declaration of guilt. By who? By the only person that matters. That God is the one who declares sinners unrighteous, that declares us guilty, that personally lays upon us the responsibility for our failure to live to his glory in every aspect of our life. So we are shamefully guilty. We are personally guilty. We are eternally guilty. But this is much more than a guilt trip because the Greek word is both the declaration of guilt and the punishment for it. It is the pronouncement of guilt and the punishment for the guilt. It is both. So it is guilty and hell. It is guilt and separation from God. It is guilt and unending uh, separation from God and all love, truth, and beauty. It is eternal condemnation by God's own righteous decree. So go with me for a moment in, in your mind to this, and I don't know exactly what this is going to be like, but the Bible says that that day of judgment calls it in Revelation the, the great white throne, where all of humanity, not under his grace, will come before God Almighty, and God will judge individually. This is not a corporate like you're all guilty. This is an individual judgment where every single person gets what their deeds um, deserve. Now, I believe that there are degrees of punishment in hell, but hell is hell. There's no, there's no, like, you know, great place in hell. It's all bad. And that moment, as individually, billions of people stand before God and hear over and over and over again condemnation, not that you're simply that you're guilty, but you are guilty and you are punished forever. What a horrible, terrible moment that will be. 
Trillions of years upon trillions of years, forever and ever, time without end. That's the condemnation of Romans 8. And it's a horrible thing. But please note that in front of the word condemnation is a wee little word. And what a precious wee little word it is. Two letters, just two letters that make all the difference for our eternal destiny. And it's, of course, what word? No. No. (laughs) There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is now no declaration of guilt, and there is no eternal punishment. I wonder if there could be a more wonderful negative in all of the world. We are forever not punished. Okay, this is essentially from God, a guarantee from God Almighty. It will, for us, never be hell. Never be hell. Our status will never be retried. Our our wrongs will never be re-adjudicated. This case against us will never be reopened. There is never going to be a new judge and jury to sort of reconsider all of the terrible things that we have done. It will never happen. In fact, we could say, but wait, could additional charges be brought against us in the future? Maybe I pass through that judgment day, but maybe, you know, something comes up in the future. And later in Romans 8, Paul will answer that by saying, charges by who? God is the one who justifies, and Jesus is the one who died for us. So who exactly has the moral standing to bring up charges against us in the future? And the answer to that is, there is nobody. Why? Because if God is for us, who can be against us? So there is no guilt ever. There is no punishment ever. There is no future accuser ever. There is no future charges ever. All of this sounding much like what Jesus said meant when he said, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Amen. John eight thirty six. So that is no condemnation. Now I want everybody to note here, though, that there is a condition for the no condemnation. I'm going to make the assumption here today that, that all of us here, any rational, spiritual person would say, You know, I would prefer no condemnation to condemnation. Amen. But notice there is a condition. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this is not a blanket statement that is true for everybody. This is not a universalism where, hey, we're all good in the end. No, it is only those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? And here we are again, as Romans has brought us many times, on to this wonderful doctrine of union with Christ. I'm convinced that when we're all done with Romans, if you say, hey, what was the one thing that you got out of Romans that you didn't expect? I think it's going to be uh, union with Christ. And we've talked about it many times. I illustrated it. You might remember I had, I had you know, climbing ropes and carabiners, and I was trying to say, you know, this is what it means by faith, where I carabiner in with the work of Jesus. I am now in union with him. And what it essentially means is this, that in God's eyes, whatever happened to Jesus happened to me. Whatever happened to Jesus happened to me. So when Jesus died on the cross for sin, I died with him. My guilt died with him. When he was dead in the grave, spiritually, in the eyes of God, I was there with him. When he was resurrected from the dead, 
I was there in that resurrection as Jesus conquered my death for me. I am in union with Jesus and all of the saving activities that he has done through Calvary and his gospel. It is a wonderful doctrine. We praise God for union with our precious Lord Jesus. Now the shorthand for union with Christ is the oft found in Christ Jesus or in Jesus or in him. When you see that all throughout the New Testament, you need to think to yourself, ah, that's union with Christ. In fact, it is found 165 times in the New Testament. So if you're reading your Bible, which I hope that you are, you're going to see this over and over and over again. What does it mean? It means I'm in union with Christ. What happened to him happened to me. So let's put this together now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in union with Christ Jesus. There is no guilt. There is no sentence. There is there's no fear of some future charge. The opposite of condemnation is what is true for those that are in Christ Jesus. It is all heaven. It is all freedom. It is all new earth forever. At the same time, if you are not in Christ Jesus, tragically, what this verse is saying is the opposite is true for you. There is now, therefore, certain condemnation for those who are not in Christ Jesus. And now it's pronouncement and punishment. There is guilt forever. It is hell forever with the same provisions. Your case will never be retried. There's no appeal system in hell. There's nobody that after a trillion years that you can think in your mind might actually go before God and argue the case on your behalf. The situation will never be changed. It'll never be heard on appeal. There is no new judge and no new jury because if God is against you, who can be for you? And so you see how these two destinies depart in radical ways. And I have to ask, which of these is true for you? Are you in Christ Jesus by faith in Jesus so that for you there is no condemnation ever? Or are you not in Christ Jesus? Which means as you sit here today, you are under the condemnation of God and your eternity is also certain. I would just say to you, friend, trust in Christ. Amen. Trust in Christ. The stakes are so unbelievably high forever. I don't even know what I can do to convince you of how important this is. To think of all the time and energy people put into their house and their job and their kids and their this and their that, blah, 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 like that. And none of it matters, I should say none of it matters in the end, but you know what I mean, it compared to your eternal destiny and the condemnation of Almighty God. Will you not allow the importance of that to give you a moment of reflection upon your own destiny and to ask, am I in Christ? Is Jesus my Savior? Is his work on the cross my hope for my salvation or not? And if not, why not right now where you sit, trust in him? I urge you to do it. Do you see the stakes here? If God is against you, who can be for you? If God is for you, who can be against you?
trust in Christ. Well, we move on now. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. While Romans 8 continues to talk about Jesus, the Trinitarian focus of the chapter is actually on God the Holy Spirit. Now, quickly, because we have people visiting, backgrounds, different backgrounds, what are we talking about here? This is the, this is the teaching of Scripture called the Trinity. The Trinity is that God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Deuteronomy 6. That God is indeed one. There is only one God. But in the Bible, God is presented in three different persons. God the Father, God the Son who got the name Jesus, human name Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. That these three are individuals, but they are so united that they, we can talk about God being one. And there is mystery to that that I don't understand as well, but that's what the Bible teaches. And if there's a Trinitarian focus in Romans 8, it is on the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit. Here Paul calls him the Spirit of life. What a great name for him when you understand what he does. Like he is, he is the life giver. He, is, he was there in creation. He, he, uh, he was there in the, in the uh, incarnation of Jesus. In, in Mary's womb, he is the one who causes us to be born again in the miracle of regeneration. The Holy, where the Spirit goes, there's life. Like, that's just, he is life. He brings vitality wherever he is. We desire to be led by the Spirit in our church and for this room right now to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit because where he is, there is life, and where he is, there is freedom. Amen. He is the agent and the agency by which God applies what Jesus did to us personally. So God the Father purposes salvation, Jesus accomplishes salvation, the Holy Spirit applies salvation. Titus 3.5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, boy we've learned about that in Romans, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so therefore, where the Spirit goes, he, you know, Satan, Satan and sin is bondage, it's shackles, it's death, it's, it's jail. But the Holy Spirit is life and is freedom. 2 Corinthians 3, now the, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we see this now playing out in the story of Romans, because Romans 7 is like the depressing reality of indwelling sin. Romans 8 is the glorious reality of indwelling spirit. So Romans 7 is like, Romans 8 is, ah! (laughs) Do I need to do that again? (laughs) I'm gonna. Romans 7 is, ah! Romans 8, ah! Right? 7 sin, 8 spirit. 7 is defeat, 8 is victory. And within the soul of every Christian spiritually dwells the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? I'm looking around this room, many Christians here. What am I seeing? All kinds of little tabernacles where the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. I don't understand how he dwells in us, but he's God. Okay, so he figures out things I, don't, I can't figure out. He is in our 
in our body, in our soul. He dwells with us. And what does the Holy Spirit do in us? Here's some things the Bible says. He convicts us of sin. He comforts us. In fact, he's called the comforter. He renews us. And he glorifies Christ. Here's the interesting thing about the Holy Spirit in this world. He's not here to draw glory to himself. He's like a beacon of light pointing on to Christ. So that one of my favorite theologians says it this way, the essence of the Holy Spirit's ministry is at this or any time in the Christian era to mediate the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Or to say it this way, if we are in Christ, then the Spirit is in us. And the implication and ramification of having Almighty God dwelling within your soul is so powerful that Paul here calls it a law. Notice, the law of the spirit of life. And it's a play on words because he's been talking about the law for seven chapters. Not that the law is bad, but what does it produce in us? It produces sin in us because it makes us want to do what it tells us not to do. And it results in death. The wages of sin is death. And so the law is good in the sense that it reflects the character of God. But for us, it's a, it's a millstone around our neck. It's a law of sin and death to us. But the Spirit is a law, like gravity is a law. It's a force. It's an influence. Everything in our world is affected by gravity. Watch, I'll show you. Look at Wow. And you knew it was going to do that. Why? Because we're so accustomed to everything being drawn to the center core of earth. We live in it every day. To be in this world is to be influenced by the power of the sheer mass of planet Earth. And the effect of having Almighty God within us is a kind of gravitational law that orients slowly over time every aspect of our life. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier. He is the one that is working in our hearts. For this message to have any blessing in anybody's life today, it's not because I am eloquent or the volume is up or anything else. It is because the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God. That's the only way it works. This is the Holy Spirit of life, the Holy Spirit of freedom. Let me give a, a recent example around here. Two Sundays ago, I had this couple come up to me, and they were like, shaking with like excitement and they said we got to talk to you I said uh well okay you know I think it was around lunchtime so I'm kind of like well you know is this urgent or you know could <laughs> help me with this and they're like well it doesn't have to be now but we want to talk to you so much we got to tell you what God has done in our life I said okay great so I met with them the next Friday they came into my office they sat down and they told me the story the wife grew up in a Christian home kind of a church going type sort of person Christian Husband, not that way. Chronic pot smoker, atheist, who would come with her to our church. And he mentioned to me, yeah, I really liked your sermons. I don't know what it means when pot smoking atheists like your sermons, but (laughs) I'll leave that to your own consideration. And they were having problems and crisis in their marriage, and a lot of it centered on lifestyle and, you know, differences. And one day, his wife is reading Jude. 
Some of you don't even know what Jude is. It's a little book in the Bible. It's like tucked in with Revelation. You almost like skip through it like Jude Revelation. Like it's one word almost, you know, and you can almost do that. You don't read Jude. Who reads Jude? It's so little and insignificant. She's reading Jude. And as she reads Jude, the description there reminds her of her husband. He comes home and she says, you need to read Jude. He goes, all right. And so he pulls out Jude. And as he is reading Jude, the power of the word of God suddenly took hold on him. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized the whole thing is true. I realize that there is a God. I realize that Jesus is his son. I realize that he died on the cross for my sins. And he said, as I read Jude, I became a Christian. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Not Romans. Not John, Jude. I've never heard that before, but okay. It's in the Bible. Now here's the interesting thing that relates to the message. He said to me, the moment after I trusted in Christ, I was filled with regret. And he said, I regretted over the years taking communion at Bethel Church. And he said, here's the thing, I, don't, I was never told I wasn't, you know, I didn't know that was the thing I shouldn't be doing. But I was instantly filled with regret that as a non-Christian, I took the Lord's Supper. Who are you to do that? He said, That's, that was the thought that came to me. Where did that come from? It came from the Holy Spirit indwelling his heart. And all of a sudden, the first thing that he's regretting and thinking about, it's not a lifetime of marijuana. It's not the kind of activities that go along with that lifestyle. He regrets defiling the Lord's ordinance established in the upper room. That's the Holy Spirit. And today is his first Sunday taking the Lord's table as a Christian. Amen. Praise God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. And off we go in the greatest chapter of the Bible.